This morning, if you got a Bible with you there on your couch or around your kitchen table, I want to encourage you to open with me to the book of Mark. We'll continue to work our way through his gospel account. We're in Mark chapter 7, uh, verses 1 to 13 this morning. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures in front of you, it'll be on the screen as I read it. Uh, I encourage you to read it along with me. Beginning in Mark chapter 7 and verse 1, Mark writes these words. He says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk around according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandments of God and hold to the tradition of men." And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. Listen, when it comes to the Bible within our culture, when it comes to a view of the Scriptures uh, in our particular culture, there are at least two uh, ends of a spectrum. There are some people who would see the Bible as being a book of rules and regulations. These are many times people who grew up in very legalistic, moralistic types of environments where it was reinforced week after week, Sunday after Sunday, sometimes day after day within their homes, that the way to be acceptable to God was, in, was to obey all the rules, was to keep all the regulations, was to cross all the T's and dot every single I. There's some people who view the Bible as merely a book of a moral code or principles or regulations and rules that must be kept. On the other end of the spectrum, and sometimes it's a reaction to that particular view of the Bible, is not a view of the Bible that sees it as a list of regulations, but as a book of inspiration. Right? There's many people who view the Bible as if it's filled with all kinds of inspirational wisdom that can assist them to achieve the goals that they have set for their lives. And so they pull Bible verses oftentimes out of context in order to apply them to whatever endeavor they have set forth for their life. And so there are some who see the Bible as a list of regulations. There are some who see it merely as a book of inspiration. But I want to show you from the text this morning, that is not at all how Jesus sees it. That is not at all how Jesus sees the Scriptures. In fact, Jesus has a very high view of Scripture. A very high view of Scripture. And as we considered uh, thus far in the book of Mark, we've been looking at Jesus to determine who He is and how He conducts Himself. And as we've seen Jesus unfolded for us on the pages of Scripture, we come here to this text in Mark chapter 7, where we see Jesus' view of the Bible, Jesus' view of Scripture, 
particularly Jesus' view of the Old Testament, in contrast to the way it was being handled in his day. And so what I want to do for us this morning is to take a look at what, how Jesus sees the Scriptures in contrast to the way they are handled in our day. For those who think they are merely a book of regulations or merely a book of inspiration, Jesus says, listen, no, they're much more than that. And if we're going to see Jesus, the, the, the Bible in the way that Jesus does, we have to come to do three things. First of all, we have to adjust. Second of all, we have to grasp. And third of all, we have to love. So let's take a look at those three things as we consider Jesus' view of the Scriptures and how we might embrace that same view that He has. First of all, if we're going to see Jesus' view of the Scriptures and embrace Jesus' view of the Scriptures, we have to adjust to the Bible's authority. Adjust to the Bible's authority. Listen, in this particular text, uh, you see it on, on a number of occasions where Jesus speaks of how the people, the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Jewish people as a whole had abandoned the commandments of God to embrace the tradition of the elders or the traditions of men. In verse 8, Jesus says it this way, You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. In other words, you abandon what God has said to embrace the layers of tradition that men have created. Listen, what Jesus is referring to here is not tradition per se. Because you can't really have life without some sense of order. Life without some sense of tradition. If, we said, if I said to you, listen, we, we, you can tune in at 10.30 on Sunday morning, but we may or may not be here. We may choose to, to do what we're going to do at 11, or we may choose to do it at 9.30. Right? Then there, there would be no sense of order, because the tradition brings a sense of order for our lives. So Jesus isn't criticizing tradition per se, but a particular type of tradition, the tradition of the elders, or these traditions of men. And essentially what Jesus is talking about here is a set of rules and regulations that over the years had grown up around the Scriptures. They were not in the Scriptures, but the teachers and the rabbis had developed them and they became just as authoritative and as binding as Scripture itself. And oftentimes they were much more particular than the Scriptures. And so where the Scriptures laid out principles, they, get, they, they, they took the principles and, and developed particulars that they made as binding as the principle that the Scriptures had given. And oftentimes they ended up co- uh, uh, overthrowing the Scriptures or contradicting the Scriptures. For instance, let me give you a few examples here. There, 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 there were all types of traditions of the elders that grew up around the Scriptures with regards to Sabbath. You see in the Scriptures, in the Ten Commandments, that we're, God calls us to participate in the Sabbath, to rest from our labors on a weekly basis, to be reminded that ultimately our work is ultimately under the authority of God. To be reminded that we can rest from our work and still be provided for by God. But all throughout the Old Testament and through, this, through the centuries, there were these traditions that got layered on top of the Sabbath commandment. For instance, let me give you a few examples. An ordinary Sabbath day journey extended a little over half a mile beyond one's dwelling. But if at the boundary of that journey, a man were to deposit food on Friday for two meals, he thereby constituted it as his dwelling, and so he could go on for another half a mile. So he went on another half a mile, he put more food there, it was another dwelling, so he could keep going. Right? So there were all these types of traditions that got layered on top. For instance, if a person were in one place and his hand was filled with fruit, he would have to drop the fruit, 
since if he withdrew the full hand from one place and took it into another, he would be carrying a burden on the Sabbath. So if you had a strawberry in your hand and you left from one place to go to the other, you couldn't carry the strawberry with you and eat it when you got to the place that you were going because you were carrying a burden. Men must be careful not to put on any dress which might become burdensome, nor to wear any ornament which might be put off and carry in his hand, for this would be a burden." Women, likewise, must not wear such headgear as would require unloosing before taking a bath, nor going out with such ornaments as could be taken off in the street, such as a frontlet, unless it's attached to the cap, nor with a golden crown, nor with a necklace or nose ring or rings, nor have a pin in their dress. The reason for this prohibition of ornaments was that in their vanity, women might take them off to show them to their companions and then forgetful to the day, carry them, which would constitute a burden. All these types of traditions have been layered on top of the commandment of the Sabbath. And Jesus says, you've layered so many levels of tradition on top of the commandments that you forget the commandment itself as you abide by all the layers of tradition. Jesus gives actually two illustrations in our text this morning. He talks about purity and generosity. Or about ritual purity. See, the ritual washings that Jesus is, being, is referring to here in the Scriptures, that uh, Mark's referring to as the Pharisees push he and his disciples on why they don't wash their hands before they eat, have nothing to do with hygiene. Like we would think of right, washing our hands for 20 seconds with soap and water and then using our elbows to open the doors, okay? It has nothing to do with the same type of hygiene that we practice, but it had more to do with ritual, ceremonial purity and cleansing. In fact, in the Old Testament, the only people who were commanded to engage in these ceremonial purifications were the priests. And had a beautiful imagery because before they went in to lead the people in the worship of God, they had to cleanse themselves before they went in to approach God's presence. And yet by the time of Jesus, you notice in the text as we read, for the Pharisees and all the Jews now, they don't eat. Because after they've been out into the marketplace, they might have come into contact with a Gentile who would have made them ceremonially unclean. So before they could eat, they had to wash their hands to ceremonially purify themselves. So they're taking what was, was commanded to the priest and applying it to every person. And they're laying on traditions. In addition, Jesus speaks of generosity, not only purity. See, in the text, the concept of korban, it meant dedicated or offered up to God. And the rabbis essentially taught that if something had been dedicated to God, it was unavailable then because God's claim on everything took precedence over anyone else's claim, which is right. And yet, if it had been dedicated to God, right, it can no longer be leveraged to care for friends or family in need. So if a family member came to you and said that they were in need and they came to you for assistance and as a kinsman you could redeem them from their debt then there was a loophole created here on this whole concept of Corban that you could say to your family member listen I would love to help you but listen the land that I have in my possession has been dedicated to God therefore I can't sell it in order to purchase you out of your debt to redeem you from your debt And what would have gone to assist your family, to your mother or father, ultimately you can retain possession of because you have set it aside to be dedicated to God. And Jesus says this would absolutely contradict with the command to honor your father and mother. 
And then Jesus goes on in verse 13 and he says this, and many such things you do. In other words, Jesus says, I could give you a hundred other illustrations, but I won't. Over and over again, Jesus says, you've abandoned the commands of God to embrace the traditions of the elders, the traditions of men, things that men have said over things that God has said. And in that abandonment, oftentimes what you've done is you've embraced things that contradict the very heart of the command itself. And Jesus is angry with the Pharisees and the scribes because in letting go, listen, of the unique authority of the Scriptures and elevating their traditions to authoritative and binding levels, they've ceased to engage in true worship of God. This is a high accusation on the lips of Jesus. Listen to what He says in verse 9. He said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Then in verse seven, back in verse 7, he said, quoting from the prophet Isaiah, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus says, when you let go of the scriptures as the ultimate, final, highest authority and you place on top of it or equal to it any commandment, tradition, or teaching of men, What you've done is you've abandoned true worship of God and created for yourself your own God. A God that is easier for you to please. A God that is easier for you to worship. You've created your own God, a God in your own image, in your own likeness. Jesus says that the authority of God's commands in the Scriptures and true worship of God, they stand and they fall together. You can't have one without the other. So if you've embraced a view of the Bible that sees it merely as a book of regulations and that if I really want to keep it then, and do well at it, then I layer in on top of it. More and more and more and more and more regulations so I don't even get close to going out of bounds. And listen, what you've done is you've set up for yourself a false God that you are worshiping. Listen, I think people are concerned whether or not college football is going to take the field in the fall, whether or not the NFL is going to play. But listen, one of the things on a football field that I find very interesting is the hash marks. The hash marks are not out of bounds. But where the ball is reset whenever a player does go out of bounds on a particular side of the field. And they are there to let you know, hey, you're getting close as well to the, out of bound, to the boundary line. And listen, what happens in our lives oftentimes is when we view the Bible through a very moralistic, legalistic, rigid lens, is what we end up doing is we end up taking hash marks that might be wisdom for a person in a particular given situation, and we make them the out of bounds line. And Jesus says, that's what the Pharisees have done. That's what the Pharisees and the scribes were doing. And as a result, they ceased to worship God. But they were worshiping a God of their own creation. Listen, as you, as you look at what Jesus has to say about the Scriptures here and their authority in life, I think we would be remiss not to see what He says elsewhere about the Scriptures as we consider adjusting our lives to their authority rather than layering in regulations that make it easier for us to know whether or not we've abided by them. Jesus doesn't just say this about the Bible in His teaching, but He says other things as well. 
For instance, Jesus, in both the things that he thinks, the way that he acts, and what he what he desires in his heart are all formed and shaped by the scriptures. See, whenever Jesus had a moral, ethical, intellectual issue that was at stake, the final word for Jesus was always this. It is written. It is written. And in saying this, Jesus was asserting that it didn't matter what the experts said, what the culture said, what your friends said, or what your own desires and your own heart said. What mattered was what the Scripture said, and it was settled. In fact, in John 10, Jesus makes this statement. He says that the Scriptures, they cannot be broken. They are binding. In Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks of the Scriptures in this way. He says there's not, that no commandment of God is going to pass away. Not even a jot or a tittle. Not even a letter or the smallest stroke of a pen is going to pass away. Jesus says, listen, the the final word for me intellectually, morally, ethically, in the way that I think is the scriptures. But not only what he thought, but also the way that he acted, not only his mind, but his will. See, Jesus not only based his thinking on the scriptures, but every deed that he did as well. In Matthew 26, when the soldiers arrest Jesus and Peter goes to draw his sword, Jesus says to Peter, he says, put your sword away. Put it away, Peter, but how else will the Scriptures be fulfilled? In other words, what I'm doing right now is a fulfillment of what has been prophesied, a fulfillment of what has been predicted, a fulfillment of what has been promised. I'm fulfilling the Scriptures. I'm acting now consistent with what the Scriptures say. But also, finally, his emotions, his heart. See, the main fortification for Jesus' heart was the Scriptures. When he's assaulted by Satan in the wilderness, he responds with these words three times. It is written. And he finally responds by saying that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And when he's carrying his cross in Luke chapter uh, 24, and he falls down and he sees women weeping around him, he quotes from Hosea. On the cross as he hangs there, he quotes from Psalm 22 verse 1 and Psalm 31 verse 5. When he, when he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And into your hands I commit my spirit. See, when Jesus, is, his life is so saturated with the words of Scripture that when he was stabbed, he bled Bible. He bled the Scriptures. Let me ask you a question. If you were falling from a cliff, right? if your car caroms off of a cliff on the side of a mountain and you're falling down on, through the windshield, all you can see are the rocks below and you are facing your impending death, what are you going to cry out in that moment? See, whatever it is, you don't think about what you should say. <laughs> what are people going to think? What are my expectations in this moment? How should I... Coin this phrase. No, whatever is going to come out of you in that moment is what is in you. And so Jesus is so saturated. The foundation for his life, for the way that he thought, for the way, what he did, for what he felt and desired was the Scriptures. And so as a result, listen, in the same way that the true worship of God and the authority of God's Word the authority of His commands rise and fall together. I want you to consider the authority of Scriptures and the authority of Jesus. They stand and fall together in our lives as well. Because, let me, let, me, let me say it this way, you cannot follow Jesus and reject the very foundation and basis of His entire life. 
You cannot follow Jesus and pick and choose portions of the foundation and the basis for everything that he thought, everything that he did, and everything that he desired. And so unless you're willing to adjust your life to the authority of Scripture, especially in places, listen church, where it contradicts your heart, where it contradicts your friends, where it contradicts your culture, where it contradicts the experts, then there's no way that you can follow Jesus because the authority of Jesus and the authority of the Bible stand and fall together. See, the first thing we've got to do is learn to adjust our lives to the Bible's authority. If we're going to have a high view of Scripture in the way that Jesus does. See, listen, there may be all sorts of things in the Bible that modern people don't want to believe because they're hard for us to do, because they run counter to what we want. But listen, I want you to hear this as well. There's, in the same way that there's all sorts of things in the Bible that are hard for modern people to believe because, they don't, because they're hard for us to do, there's all sorts of things in the Bible that are hard for modern people to believe because we believe they're too good to be true. There are things that are too hard for us to do and things that are too good to be true. Listen, but if we haven't given the Scriptures the final say, the authority to address the hard areas of our lives, the things that run counter to what we want, to yield to the Scriptures in those areas, then listen, whenever you fail, whenever you fall, whenever you sin, whenever you look in the mirror and you say, how could I have done that? Whenever your heart condemns you, there will be no hope for you. Because the scriptures will not have the authority to argue you into a place of joy and of knowledge that you are indeed a child of God. See, if the scriptures can't address those areas in our lives which are hard for us to do because they have authority to do so, then they won't have the authority to grant us hope in the midst of our failure. In 1 John chapter 3, John says that when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts because He knows everything. He knows everything. And listen, if the Scriptures don't have the authority to contradict us in those areas which we don't want to give up our wills, then they won't have the authority to let us know that God is greater than our heart when it seeks to condemn us over our sinful decisions. You can't have one without the other. They stand and fall together. So if we're going to have the high view of Scripture that Jesus does, we've got to adjust to the Bible's authority. But second of all, sermon's not over there. Okay. Second of all, we've got to learn to grasp the Bible's purpose. See, no matter what we were taught growing up, potentially in a moralistic, legalistic environment, where we were taught this in Sunday school, we were taught this from the pulpit, we were taught this in our homes, no matter what we were taught, the purpose of the Bible, listen, is not formal, rigid compliance. But the purpose of the Bible is personal, intimate relationship. Look at the text with me. In verse 6, Jesus says to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. God says, I don't want merely 
your rote repetition. I don't want merely your external conformity to regulations. That's not the purpose of the Bible. God says, I want your heart. I want, to, I want intimacy with you. I want to enjoy relationship with you. And rote external obedience is not intimacy. It is not relationship. God says your heart is far from me and I want it near to me. I want intimacy with you. See, if you add layers of rules and regulations on top of the Bible, then it shows you believe the purpose of the Bible is so you can feel like you're an obedient and righteous person that deserves blessing from God. In other words, you earned blessing from God. See, the purpose of the Bible, though, is not to back God in a corner so He's obligated to bless you because of your obedience. The purpose of the Bible is that you might enjoy personal, intimate relationship with Him. In fact, Jesus calls the former way of viewing the Bible, external, rigid compliance, He calls it hypocrisy. And that word hypocrisy literally means this. It means play acting. It's a Greek word that came from the Greek theater. See, and in Greek theater, you only had so many actors to go around. So oftentimes, one actor would play two different parts. And in so doing, they would have masks that they would change out between scenes or between, uh, between dialogues. They would change out a mask from one character to another character because they knew they were just playing a part. It was role-playing with multiple masks. But listen, an individual who plays a part, an actor or an actress on the stage or in a show is not that person in reality. They're just playing a part. Good actors or actresses may be able to sell the fact that they've embraced this character that they are playing, but they are not that person. Right? Christian Bale is not Batman. Okay? Jack Bauer, okay, was a fictional character played by Kiefer Sutherland. He was not Jack Bauer. Uh, some of you are going to go binge on 24 after this, I can imagine. Okay, but listen, these are individuals who are playing a part. They are not that person. And they, they, they are, it's not genuine and sincere as much as they would act, act it out. But listen, what happens when a person confuses their role with reality. We might say something like this, that the person is not quite right. They're not firing all cylinders. They're a few pennies short of a dollar. Okay? They're, they're a few fries short of a Happy Meal. Right? That, that, that something has gone wrong in the way they're perceiving reality. And so what Jesus, when He criticizes the Pharisees and the scribes and calls them hypocrites here, He's not criticizing their sincerity because they're being very sincere. But He's criticizing their sanity. See, the Pharisees and the scribes, they were living as if the script that they were acting out was real life. In this sense, they're acting and their whole life is like a movie. They're not insincere, but they're misguided and they're wrong. They're wrong about the way that they're viewing the purpose of the Scriptures. It's not about external, rigid compliance. It's about an intimate personal relationship. Their hearts were far from Him, even though their lips Gave him honor. Let me show this to you from the Bible. Why this is not, why external rigid compliance is, let me show you elsewhere why it's not this way. Listen, consider Exodus chapters 19 and 20. When God comes in and he rescues his people out of slavery, bondage, and captivity in Egypt, and he leads them toward the land of promise. 
Now, if you look at the order of the text in Exodus chapter 20 is where Israel receives the law, but it's back in Exodus chapter 12 when God comes in and begins to lead them out of the land. See, God did not come into Israel or come into Egypt and say to his people, here's the Ten Commandments. If you will obey these commands, then I will take you out of slavery and I will make you my people. No, what God does is He comes in and He rescues His people out of slavery, out of bondage, captivity. He crushes their enemies, leads them across on dry ground, swallows up the Egyptians and the Pharaoh under the floodwaters of the Red Sea. And then as He leads them toward the land of promise, He says, if you will keep these things, the commands that I'm giving you today here on the Mount, Mount Sinai, if you will keep these things, then you'll be my treasured possession. In other words, then we will have intimacy with each other. There will be a nearness that you experience and enjoy with me. My treasured possession. That's the way that God gives the law. He redeems, rescues, crushes their enemies, delivers them, and then gives them the law so they might enjoy intimate personal relationship with him. Now listen, for us in the Western world, the idea of obeying the law and enjoying relationship seem to be polar opposites. They seem to be have nothing to do with each other. Well, let, me, let, me, let me push back on that assumption for a moment. Right? Listen, I want you to consider something. Whenever you're falling in love with someone, what do you do? Well, one of the things that you do is you do some research. Right? You, 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 do, you do some research. And so what you want to do is you're falling in love with someone. You want to consider, you want to learn everything you can about that person, particularly about the things that offend them and out, that cause them to be outraged. Right? The things that they cannot stomach. The things that, that uh, they, 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 they just refuse to accept. But you also want to learn the things about them that delight them that bring them joy, that bring them happiness. So you want to learn all these things about them because this is the will of the one that is your beloved. This is the will of the one that you're falling in love with. And then once you learn all these things about them, the things that outrage and offend them, the things that delight them and bring them joy, then you begin to bend the arc of your life. You begin to bend your will towards theirs because what you're doing as you fall in love with someone is you're placing your happiness into their happiness. So you're happy whenever they're happy. You're joyful whenever they're joyful. You're outraged whenever they're outraged. You're offended when they're offended. You begin to bend the arc of your life toward the will of the one that you love. And listen, this is, this is a beautiful thing, particularly if both parties are doing the same. When both parties are bending the arc, when both parties are placing their happiness into the other person's happiness, both parties are outraged by the things that outrage the other. Both parties are delighted by the things that delight the other. Right? Apart from that, it's exploitation. And one person is just using the other. But whenever both are doing that, that's a genuine, intimate love relationship. And listen, church. The law of God is not antithetical. It is not against a loving, intimate relationship with God. But the commands of God that are given all across the Bible 
are the means by which we bend the ark of our lives to the ark of our beloved. The one that we love because he first loved us. And you may be saying, well, listen, that sounds like exploitation because where's God bending the ark of his life to me? If you're thoughtful, at least you're thinking that. Listen, I want you to consider in the Garden of Gethsemane. Whenever Jesus is there, he's been, he's, he's been abandoned by everyone. And he's crying out to the Father, God, if there is any other way to achieve the redemption of mankind, to accomplish salvation for all who have rebelled against you. Let it be. And then he prays, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. In other words, I'm going to bend the ark of my life to theirs. I'm going to place my happiness in theirs. I'm going to yield my life over for them. And listen, whenever you see that, that God has come to rescue you, regardless of how well you feel like you've jumped through all the hoops and you've abided by all the regulations, then no longer, listen, do you want to try and take the Bible and merely make it a book of inspiration for you to achieve your personal agendas? But now what you want to do is, now what you do is you see the Bible as this means by which you enjoy intimacy and relationship with God as you see the commands of God and you bend the arc of your life to His commands because, he has bent, because Jesus bent the arc of His life for your salvation, for your redemption, for you to be saved, for you to know God personally, and intimately. Now listen, that is what a love relationship with God looks like. An intimate relationship with God looks like. It's like me ordering my life around His will. It's like me ordering my life around His commands. Because they are not, the law is not against love. But love is, is carried out by my obedience to the law. Which is why John will say in 1 John that we show our love for God through the keeping of His commands. So you've got to grasp the Bible's purpose. It wasn't given to you so that you could have inspiration for your life's agenda, and it wasn't given to you so you could feel good and as a good, righteous, and obedient person who is better than everyone else because you've jumped through all the regulations. No, it was given to us to know and love God. So you've got to adjust your life to its authority. You've got to grasp its purpose. But finally, listen, if we're going to do this, we've got to learn not only to adjust our life to its authority, grasp its purpose, but also we've got to learn to love the Bible's center. Love the Bible's center. Listen, there was an author and writer and and a professor named Virginia Stem Owens, and she taught writing and composition at one point at a, to a class at Texas A&M years and years ago. And she figured being in the Bible Belt that students would be familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. So she thought, I'll have them read the Sermon on the Mount. They're going to write an essay in response to the Sermon on the Mount. And to her surprise, many of the students had never really read the Sermon on the Mount. 
And so as they read it for the first time in their essays, in response to what they had read, they began to say things like this. I do not like the Sermon on the Mount. It made me feel like I had to be perfect and no one is. Or another one wrote, the things asked for in this sermon are absolutely absurd. Not to look at someone with lust. Not to scorn or despise anyone. These are the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statements I've ever heard in my life. This was the response of the students that they came to grasp the gravity of what was being required in the Sermon on the Mount. Right? You've heard it said, but I say to you, over and over, Jesus uses those, that language to say, listen, the law goes beyond external compliance and it goes down to the heart. So that if you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery already with her in your heart. You've heard that it was said, right? You shall not kill or murder anyone. But I tell you that if you harbor anger or bitterness in your heart, it's good as taking the knife and slaying the person dead. And so these students were taken aback by the standard which Jesus set. In fact, one other minister said it this way. He said, if you actually read the sermon and hear what it says, you will not get warm, fuzzy feelings inside and be all close to God. But rather, when you read the sermon, you will cry out, God, save me. God, save me from the Sermon on the Mount because I can't keep it. I can't keep it. And listen, if you don't see the center of the Bible, the person at the center of the Bible, it will crush you. Because you will read the Bible and say, listen, the Bible's telling me to go and do these things without showing me this person who has done it in my place and for me. See, in good literature or a good screenplay, there's usually a lead actor or actress and every other supporting cast member or character relates to that lead in some way, shape, or form. Right? They may not be the lead may not be the first person on the screen or the first person on the stage, but all the, all the characters are, are, are coming to that lead or they're moving from that lead. Everything is ultimately coming, is pointing to that one central character in the story. And listen, when Jesus came along, with the Pharisees and scribes, and he began to set aside the traditions of the elders, which defined the meaning of the Scriptures. He was redefining the people's understanding of the Bible. Right? And when Je- what Jesus puts at the center of the Bible is not principles, but a person. Essentially, he's saying, if you want to understand the Bible, you have to read it through the lens of who I am. In fact, after his resurrection, before his ascension, when Jesus is meeting with his followers on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, right? If you're going to get ready, here you are, you've come back from the dead, right? And you're trying to get your followers ready for the rest of human history. And what are you going to tell them? What he tells them is this it's imperative that you learn how to read the Bible rightly. And this is what he says in Luke chapter 24. He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. In other words, he says, everything back there ultimately found its fulfillment in me. Everything back there was pointing to me. 
See, Jesus says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets and all the scriptures, he says, everything was pointing to me. The law, the Psalms, the prophets were fulfilled. And he began to open the minds of his followers to understand that the Old Testament spoke of his sufferings and death and resurrection and the preaching of repentance and forgiveness of sins, being proclaimed in his name to all the nations, for God's people to be a blessing to all the world. Everything written back there was about me, Jesus says. And if you don't see that, church, if you don't see, if you don't see that there's a person at the center of the Bible, and it's not you, and it's not me, but it's Jesus, then you will always be prone to read the Bible as if it is a stepping stone to God's approval through your obedience to regulations and rules, or you will always read the Bible as if it's a book of inspiration to help you achieve your agendas, rather than reading the Bible to see it reveal a person on its pages with whom you would fall more deeply in love, and therefore you would bend the arc of your life more fully to His will. Listen, I spent the better... This May will mark six years of my time in pastoring this particular congregation. And I've spent the last six years attempting or aiming to show you Jesus from the pages of Scripture no matter where we've been. So that you might be bend the arc of your life and embrace His commands. That there might be true generosity, not looking at loopholes like that of Corbin. Or that there might be True purity, not just ritual purity where you put on nice clothes and you show up on Sundays and put on a good face where there's this mask that you wear. I've been aiming to get to your heart every single week and trying to show you that Jesus is at the center of the Bible, that He's the true and better. Joseph. Right? You think of the story of Joseph. The story of Joseph isn't there to say, hey, go be like Joseph. Right? Run along now and go and forgive those who have wounded and wronged you. Those who have sold you and betrayed you. Those who have wished you dead. But what you ultimately see in the story of Joseph is here is one who was betrayed by his brothers, sold and left for dead, but ultimately rises to a place of being the prime minister, sent to the second in command of Egypt, so that whenever his family comes in their time of need, looking for assistance in the famine, Joseph forgives his brothers and provides the riches of the kingdom for them. The moral of that story is not just go be like Joseph, but it's look to Jesus, who is the ultimate Joseph. See, he was betrayed by his own. Not left for dead, but actually killed, actually crucified, actually buried in a tomb. So that, and through that, as he's raised from the grave and ascends into the right hand of the Father, right? The second in command, the right hand of the throne of God, place of power and authority so that he might forgive those who have betrayed him and killed him and provide the richness of royalty for all those who would come to him looking for help. See, the center of the Bible is the person of Jesus. And until you fall in love with Him, until you come to love Him, 
because you've grasped the purpose of the Bible, that is to bend your will to His, because He, because He laid down His will for you. And then you begin to adjust every part of your life for the rest of your life to the authority of God's commands. Listen, I know I've laid out some pretty big thoughts this morning. But my hope would be that as you process this view of the Scriptures, of adjusting to its authority, grasping its purpose, and loving the person at its core, at its center, that you would come to see, you would come to see those areas of your life that need to be adjusted to the commands of Scripture so that you might enjoy more fully. See, if, you, if, you're, if, you, if you're listening, if you're under the sound of my voice today and you're wondering where the intimacy with God has gone in your life, it may be, it may be that you've ceased to adjust your life to the Bible's authority. And my hope would be that as this a love for Jesus rises in your heart, as you see Him at the center of the Scriptures, that you would come to bend the arc of your life to His will and adjust everything, all of your life for the rest of your life, to the authority of His Word, so you might enjoy intimacy with God. And as you process that with, as, your, as a family, as you process that in your life groups, as you process that with other believers in your life, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. Embrace Jesus' view of the Scriptures. Don't make them about inspiration for your agenda. And don't make them about regulations that will, help, that will earn God's approval in your life. But see the Bible for what it is. Means to intimacy with God as you bend every corner of your life to His will out of love for the One who has loved you. And pray for us. Father, we thank You so much for the Scriptures. And Father, I know that there are many who are listening today who have enjoyed intimacy with You through Your Word. And I thank You for that. There are many listening today who have worshipped You truly as they've bent the arc of their life to Your will through what You've revealed to us in the Scriptures, both Old and New Testament. Because they've seen Jesus at the center and they've fallen more in love with Him. And there's deeper and broader strokes of obedience in their lives as a result. But Father, for those who have ceased to experience that intimacy, I pray today for repentance. I pray that they would come back to obedience, not as a means of earning your love but as a means of demonstrating their love for you and enjoying that relationship that they once knew. And for those who have never known it, Father, I pray they would not believe the lies of legalism. They would not believe the lies of moralism. But maybe they have heard. They would not believe 
that they have to jump through hoops and regulations in order to be saved. But they would know that Jesus jumped through every hoop, that Jesus kept every regulation and then laid his life down, set aside his will for his Father's will to embrace us in love. And I pray that that would wash away any any false belief that the Bible is about regulations to make them acceptable or that the Bible is about inspiration to help them accomplish their agenda, to use you to get what they really want. But Father, this morning, help them to see. Help them to see that what it means to be a Christian is to love you because you first loved us and to obey you to enjoy intimacy, relationship, and joy, fullness of joy in you. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.